Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. So how many years at the agency, Sean? Uh, more than 26. How did the agency change over that time period? What never changed was a couple things. Was it, No matter what was going on in the world, no matter what challenges we faced, no matter what the hot topic of the day was, it was never game over. There was never a time when anybody that I ever knew at the agency said, well, we probably can't solve that problem. The things that change for the better, the, the agency represents much better job of representing the country as it exists today. And I'm talking about building a workforce that values people's, the diversity they bring and includes them in the conversation. And, and it was a very different workforce when I sure joined was. compared to where it is now. What's the broad mission of the science technology director? Well, the CIA is not the CIA unless it has case officers and all source analysts. So the mission of everybody else at the agency is what can I do to advance that mission, specifically for DS&T, what digital tools can I give them? How can we help the targeters that help them uh, execute their mission and know who to uh, recruit? How do we give them the right tools? They're coming to work saying, how do I do something that people think can't be done, is not being done in the overt space, and how do I satisfy a need that will forward those parts of the mission? There are some voices in our country who have painted Director Brennan as a political hack, to put not too fine a word on it, and who have accused him of politicizing the agency when he was the director. You were one of his direct reports. I never heard John Brennan say one disrespectful thing or one partisan thing, and further, he wouldn't allow it. Sean Roach served for 38 years in the federal government, most of it in the Central Intelligence Agency. Sean, who just retired from federal service, left as the head of the Digital Innovation Directorate, CIA's first new directorate in more than 50 years. Sean was number two in that directorate when it was formed in 2015. Prior to that, Sean served in a number of senior positions in CIA's Science and Technology Directorate. Sean and I just sat down to talk about his career, how technology is changing the spy business, and about the growing cyber threat that we all face. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
Sean, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. There's a lot I want to talk about, but I want to start, if it's okay, Sean, with a couple of questions that I know that are on the minds of many of our listeners. The first is, as I mentioned, you just retired a couple of weeks ago. You lived through, as one of the agency's most senior officers, a pretty unique time in the history of the organization. Let's call it an unusual relationship with the agency's first customer, the President of the United States. Can you say a few words about the impact that living in this political time that we live in has had on the morale of the workforce at the agency? Well, Michael, I mean, I know Washington's all about politics, and that's what everybody talks about. And um, But quite frankly, not at the agency. Um, I speak to, um, for a time, spoke to every single incoming class of new officers. It was a great honor to do that. The The talk around the water cooler is, how do we get on this mission or that mission? Or have you heard that someone had a success or someone is, is needs more effort on theirs or more resources? Uh, these events that go on in Washington, really, quite frankly, everybody's got their head down in the scope. They're all about mission. Uh, they they are not on their cell phones uh, because they're in a, in a facility without them. And it's the mission that's compelling. There have been times over my career when, for instance, during the peace dividend time, when a Cessna light aircraft crashed on the lawn of the White House. And the joke in this town was it was Jim Director Jim Woolsey trying to get a meeting with President Clinton. Right, I remember that. And so we are, the agency, it's never been a better time. We are in the discussions that matter to us with the White House, the discussions about national security, the discussions about intel. And, and I would offer to anyone saying the morale is down, that might be some formers who, for them, they're not in the game anymore. And it's, I guess, it, it, you know, it's a little bittersweet to not be in the game, so their morale is down. But, boy, the average officer in the hallway, they're amazing uh, they're talented. We've had record recruiting. Uh, we are paramilitary operators going forward. The things they do and the morale that they uh, cause all of us to have by just their courage. I'm sorry. I just don't buy in that any of these events have had a change in morale. I'm not surprised. Speaking of courage, the second kind of current issue I wanted to ask you about is the IC whistleblower on Ukraine. I should say that we only know from media reporting that the whistleblower is a CIA officer, so I don't want you to confirm or deny that, and I know you won't. But I do want to ask you about how folks in the IC broadly think about the whistleblower and what he or she did wherever he or she works in the IC. Well, you know, the timing on this question is interesting because uh, the, the I, th- I would offer that the, the only... A reflection on the uh, and discussion of the whistleblower is that that person, whoever they are, followed the proper procedure, followed the rules. The agency, if anything else, is an agency that follows the law. And it was th- the person followed the procedure that's in place, took the steps necessary, and from what's been reported, uh, did a very professional job that used intelligence officer tradecraft to deliver a message they felt was important. And I think what's so vital is to, the only concern is that that is the whistleblower statute and how it's supposed to be used. There are others who will claim they are whistleblowers and are in fact criminals and thieves and treason, treasonous people like Snowden, who in this case publishes a book 
and tries to say that he has been a whistleblower or others have tried to put labels on on people like him and others that would do harm to national security. So I think the only conversation concern that I'm aware of and was part of was uh, let's not hope this term whistleblower is applied to people who uh, don't follow the rules and who, quite frankly, seek to do us harm. I just want to pick up on what you said because I think it's absolutely critical. You know, when Daniel Ellsberg gave the Pentagon Papers to the media, he stood up immediately publicly and said, I have done this. I've done it because I believe the public needs to know, and I am willing to accept the consequences of what I've done. Edward Snowden ran off first to Hong Kong and then to Moscow and refuses to come home and face the consequences of what he did. So that's just a little opinion on my part. Sean, let's shift gears a bit and spend a little bit of time on your background. How did you end up at CIA? Uh, over the years, I've been asked that question, and, and it was it was it was one of those things. Uh, Washington's a very small town. Sometimes, I was serving on active duty in the Air Force, and like so many times in my career, I'd been called into a room, and they said, "Hey, we need you to be on this task force, and uh, you're going to be one of the more junior people, and the task force is really critical." Uh, and you're going to be working really late hours, and we need you to do this. And uh, my answer was, okay. It turned out that that task force was run by uh, a man named Ambassador uh, R. James Woolsey. And we ran the task force and delivered a report to the president, and it was my first time meeting a, a director of central intelligence. And then I left the Air Force shortly thereafter and went to private industry uh, to a startup company, um, where after uh, some time, it was a short amount of time, I received a phone call and they said, stand by for the director's office. And what had happened was there had been a uh, loss of some capability. It was an area that uh, I had worked in, uh, specifically Elint. And the director said, would you, would you be willing to uh, come on board here? And I promised my wife it would only be two years. Uh, so I left the startup company. It's on the West Coast. Yeah, well, the, the the startup company was was uh, on operating out of the West Coast, and I was their Washington guy. And the idea was to move back to the West Coast. And I said, "Well, honey, we'll only be here for two more years." The uh, I was employee number six at the startup. I believe employees number one through fifteen have their own island somewhere in the Pacific. <laughs> um, but I never looked back, and and so that's how it started. It was not uh, a life's goal or life's dream, but it was. Uh, and what kept me there was the amazing people that I had an opportunity to work with. And, and the things that I saw them do that in, impressed and inspired me so much. So how many years at the agency, Sean? Uh, more than 26. How did the agency change over that time period? How do you think uh, about that? There were, there were aspects of the agency that, that changed. I, you know, I would joke with officers that I'd walk into the, through headquarters and I'd say, you know, some days I really do feel like Eisenhower still is president uh, because so there were things that never changed. You know, we had... For a time, we had a library that was a very, very traditional library, yeah. and you could walk in the library and, and really feel like you were on a movie set yes. uh, for the 1950s. But what never changed was a couple things. was it, No matter what was going on in the world, no matter what challenges we faced, no matter what the hot topic of the day was, it was never game over. We, th there was never a time when anybody that I ever knew at the agency said, well, we probably can't solve that problem. Mm -hmm. There were uh, things that changed for the better. I think uh, that the agency represents much better job of representing the country as it exists today. And I'm talking about building a workforce that values uh, people's, the diversity they bring 
and includes them in the conversation. And, and it was a very different workforce when I sure joined was. compared to where it is now. Um, I also believe that the next wave of that is being led by uh, the current uh, leadership. We're doing a fantastic job. Make sure that every officer has a balance and a resiliency and that that's built into the agency career and lifestyle. The, the mission is addictive, addictive in the truest sense. And when I was there, um, divorces, multiple divorces were offered as almost like proudly as dueling scars. And I think the emphasis now is going to be how do we make sure we have tandem spouse assignments? How are we taking care of our people? Because a resilient workforce is a workforce that's much stronger. And one thing also that hasn't changed is the agency keeps getting asked to do incredibly difficult things that no one else can do. And particularly, I think about my visits to the war zones where I had the honor of seeing our uh, paramilitary operators go out repeatedly and do what they do year after year in harm's way. And uh, just that just never changes. And it never fails to inspire. That's another thing that never changes. What's the pitch you would make to a young person with an S&T background and why they should come work at the agency? Well, the pitch I would give is um, you can go out and make a whole lot of money and help other people make a whole lot of money. Or you can have a job where you probably can't tell people what you do much about it at all, but you'll know that you got to do something that challenged you both technically, challenged you from a leadership perspective. And years from now, there will be some segment of a Discovery Channel episode or some, maybe it's a, maybe it's, you know, conspiracy theory episode, but you actually know what happened and you were part of it. And um, we... Uh, this this last few years, our talent uh, center has done a phenomenal job bringing not only people in out of college, but something else is just really, uh, I'm really proud of that's happening is we're having folks who left before a full career and they're, they're boomeranging back. Mm. And, but they're boomeranging back with great experience. These are senior people. We got Julianne Galinas, the CIO, coming back from IBM. John Edwards is the deputy uh, chief operating officer coming back out of industry with tons of smarts and uh, about how we can solve problems in an agile way. Uh, that boomerang effect really... That's a, that's a change. That never happened 20 years ago. That's, a, that's a very good thing, but that's new. That, that is new, and that, that demonstrates that, hey, we have a rule book, we follow the law, we follow the rule book, but boy, we have a lot of latitude when it comes to hiring, and we can, we can do the kind of thing. Last 20 years ago, if you left, you were dead to us. I mean, we sat Shiva, and it was over. Um, and now it's really a case of you're a national talent. Let us know when you want to come back. So, Sean, you spent much of your time working in the science and technology directorate, which is probably the least well-known of the different directorates at the agency. In an unclassified biography of you for a talk you gave at a cyber conference last year, maybe it was earlier this year, this is what the agency was willing to say about you and the S&T. Let me read this to you, okay? Over the course of his career, Sean served in senior leadership roles in the offices of development and engineering, technical collection, global access, integrated missions, and mission resources. He led teams that developed, delivered, and deployed satellite and airborne reconnaissance systems, next-generation collection platforms, clandestine collection operations, and advanced targeting tradecraft. Wow. That's an interesting list with words that conjure up all sorts of interesting things, but don't provide any specificity whatsoever, (laughs) if you listen to the words closely. 
So what I was wondering, and I'm prepared for the answer to be no, and that's okay. Nobody knows that better than me. But are there a couple of specific things that you worked on perhaps earlier in your career that have now been declassified that you can talk about a little bit? Uh, yes. Um, the, the reference to satellites was a reference to the fact that CIA has a large contingent of officers that are over at the National Reconnaissance Office. Um, and it's located in Virginia, the headquarters located in Virginia. It's a, uh, an organization that wasn't even acknowledged that it existed until the 90s. And in that organization, um, if you think of everything that's being done in space today and then say, what, what else could be done? That's what that organization does in terms of uh, delivering ISR uh, real-time. Now, the things that, some of the things that I had the honor of... ISR of, is... Uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. And one of the opportunities I had early on was uh, to work on signal-gathering satellites uh, in, in low-orbit satellites, and, and specifically uh, ones that collected uh, very faint signals. The, with them, we were able to uh, do an awful lot of things uh, to understand where people we cared about were, where weapon systems were, and then also to figure out how capable those systems were. And the, that is then integrated with military planning, uh, and I was lucky enough to participate in some uh, the, the next generation development of some systems, as well as uh, some operational use of those systems that uh, was information that was brought down to the White House to say, we can confirm this is happening. We can confirm that uh, these people are in this position in the country. We can confirm they've crossed the border. We can confirm that they're moving at this pace. Or... The, the other, which is they claim their missile has this capability, they claim they did the shot. We, we have data that refutes that completely. So that was the kind of work I did early on that a lot more of it is known. And that organization, the National Conference of CIA, still has a large presence there, and that organization is still doing. What's the broad mission of the Science and Technology Directorate? Well, the CIA is not the CIA unless it has case officers and all source analysts. So the mission of, of everybody else at the agency is how, how, what can I do to advance that mission, specifically for DS&T, what can I give the case officers in terms of, for my former job, what, what digital tools can I give them? How can we help the targeters that help them uh, execute their mission and know who to uh, recruit? How do we give them the right tools? And that's a wide spectrum of things. You know, how, how can we provide the all-source analyst, with insight uh, into how long it would take to reload a, uh, a, a mobile missile platform and the throw weight of a, of a warhead of a mobile missile. All of these things to feed two groups that really define the agency, the case officers, uh, which we talk about human, and the all-source analysts that really build the product that's delivered to the, the rest of the IC and to the president. So, Anyone else, and especially in the technical directorates uh, of uh, digital innovation and the, and the S&T, they're coming to work saying, how do I do something that people think can't be done, is not being done in the overt space, um, and how do I satisfy uh, a need that will forward those parts of the mission? I just wanted to say one more thing about the S&T. One of the things that I loved doing when I was deputy director was visiting your labs and just walking around 
the labs and seeing what people were working on and what they were excited about and what the challenges they were facing and how they were absolutely convinced that they could solve these really tough problems. It, it, it's, I loved doing that. It was just a remarkable thing. Uh, I, one of my favorite things to do, you know, the, the higher I went in the organization, the more important it was to do this, was to walk the halls. And in case of the labs, was to go hide in the lab for as long as I could until they <laughs> found me. Um, and the, the labs, which are worldwide, um, and what they do, and it's exactly what you said. I would go in and there'd be someone maybe with a soldering iron, maybe with a uh, looking at something through a microscope, maybe with a large piece of machinery next to them that's an industrial piece of machinery that's highly specialized. And they're, they've maybe got a college T-shirt on and a pair of jeans, and they look up at me like, oh, look, there's a visitor in the lab, somebody, somebody with button clothes on, um, <laughs> and a suit maybe. You don't belong, but I'll make sure you don't get you know, smattered with any stuff. Um, and they, you would ask them what's going on and the intensity they had about solving a problem. And the problem they were asked to solve was so bizarre. He's like, well, I said, what, what do you, why do you have these on the table? Well, here's the deal. Um, we found out that we, you know, there's a possibility that if we can do this with this device and put a beacon on, I was like, oh, my goodness, how are you going to possibly do that? And the, 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 the best kind of, you know, I'll, I'll say uh, inspiring demonstration of what this workforce can do is on a Thursday night, I would go into my guys and say, you know what? Uh, I just don't, they want this by next week. I just don't think we can get it ready. I, I mean, as good as you guys are, I mean, they just tested it and it, and, and it, it's not the right frequency or it emits too much. You know, and it turns out that they're going to have to use a different platform. You know, this is, right. this is probably too much to do. I should probably push back, huh? Yeah. And they say, <laughs> and they, and it's, it's just a throwdown, and they, you know, and, and the, the officers just, you know, run on it like, you know, red meat and, what happens is you do that on a Thursday, and then you say, folks, whatever you need. And literally, uh, there was one team where I just left them my credit card. I said, here is my credit card. If you guys need food or anything else. So I come back uh, Monday afternoon, and there are piles of empty containers from takeout and Panera and everything that could get delivered and Domino's, you name it. Somebody went and did runs. And I think three of them were wearing the same clothes mm. because their dedication was, I'm not, I'm not going home till this is finished. And sure enough. They had something that was, it, it wasn't going to be ready on Tuesday, but it was going to be probably ready on Saturday. And uh, it, it, it did the job. It, it was absolutely incredible. So, Sean, in 2015, Director Brennan created the agency's first new directorate in 50 years. So adding to the longstanding operations, analytics, support, and S&T directorates, he created the Directorate of Digital Innovation. And John made you the number two in this new directorate. So let me ask you some questions about that. Why was it formed? It was formed uh, out of the recognition that the technology in the digital domain was changing so fast uh, that a team dedicated to integrating it into everything we were doing, both from an opportunity standpoint and to account for the challenges of the digital domain, that that really required um, a, a, a separate team focused on that. Um, and, of course, that team works really closely with the rest of the agency. And so what happened was we had the uh, worldwide secure IT that was reporting basically upstairs to the, to the senior leadership. But, you know, that their digital expertise was really high. So we combined that with cyber intelligence uh, folks 
and who execute that mission and, and do it better than anybody else in the world, combined with this place called open source that had kind of, you know, had been a little bit adrift maybe, um, but really that business was exploding in a digital way as well, and then combined it with the data scientists and created a separate data office just to handle data. So it was it was not a holding company. It was a really new approach, it, and I, I think it was interesting. It was, a mar- it was announced on March 6th, uh, 2015. And the OPM hack was revealed to the world the following month and everything took off from there. The OPM hack was a sonic boom, uh, for things digital in that you needed better defense on a network. You needed that knowledge to be in the hands of everyone in the organization, not just the IT team. There was a cyber intelligence aspect of it and aspects of, of, uh, CNE, uh, computer network exploitation that needed to be discussed and cyber norms. And this exploded into a very, very big conversation. So, it, it, you know, the timing was absolutely perfect. Um, and it, and people said, how did you, did you know this was coming? Mm-hmm. You know, did you create the directorate to know this was coming? And so we don't create directorates <laughs> over, uh, threat reporting, but, uh, the foresight of that, and that was done based on a 90 day panel of whom uh, one of the members of that is now the chief operating officer of the agency, Andy Macritus. So a lot of really smart people, myself, not in that group. <laughs> That's not, not that true. Group, That's not true. It got together for this 90-day study and said, this is really what we need to do, um, and picked Andrew Hallman to lead it, who has now risen up to more senior levels uh, in the IC. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Sean Roach. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what was the director's vision? You know, at the end of the day, what did he want this thing to deliver to the agency? Well, first and foremost, he he wanted, and not a holding company, but an integrated capability that no matter what the issues were, that it was able to inform the risk calculus. And that's what we do at the agency. Our security teams, our counterintelligence teams, our operations teams in the field, uh, our analytic teams... All of them are using various tools to inform a risk calculus and then to figure out what, uh, what the risk is, whether we should take that risk. And when we're talking about incorporating new technologies, tremendous, tremendous opportunities. But what normally stopped us was that we were not doing what we needed to do to inform the risk calculus. And people who look at the digital domain as their tradecraft and become deep, deep experts in that tradecraft. When we started to, and we rebuilt the workforce, we changed the way we promoted expertise in it. Um, it really had the charge to accelerate the adoption and then create the advantage for the agency in the digital domain. Um, and I would offer uh, stepping back after exactly four years in the job, which is what I committed to, um, that the men and women of that direct that new directorate have have moved light years along with their partners from the rest of the agency. More to be done? Always more to be done. The pace 
The pace of change demands really some very different approaches. Um, the biggest thing I would offer is that what is happening outside of CIA's networks on the, we call it the low side, but on the internet and the expansion of internet of things uh, and the expansion of just the digital footprint of what data is out there, our ability then to operate in that open domain without revealing our hand uh, uh, when we are trying to understand what foreign adversaries are doing. There's a, there's a lot more to be done. And again, what's impressive is people of all backgrounds get exposed to this mission, uh, especially these officers we're bringing in right now. And they come back with very different ways of solving the problem. Um, and that's what's most exciting. I, I think all, all tradecraft has a, has a, a basically a half-life. And the digital tradecraft, that half-life is very short. Mm. Sean, I want to ask one more question about this, which relates to Director Brennan, since he played such a very significant role in the creation of the new directorate. In fact, I wanted to ask you about him. There are some voices in our country who have painted him as a political hack, to put not too fine a word on it, and who have accused him of politicizing the agency when he was the director. You were one of his direct reports. You worked with him every day. Did you ever see him make a decision for political reasons? Uh, no, and I, I, I led an effort that has not been talked about, is not in my bio, uh, but now there's a entertainment movie out about it uh, called The Report. I led that task force and reported directly to him every day for nine months. It was often seven days a week. And I don't think you could pick a more difficult topic where you had a workforce that was... This is a Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation of the Enhanced Interrogation Program. Yes, that's correct. So, um, and so you had a workforce that was genuinely concerned. You had our, our president and the White House said, we're going to release this in the public interest. Uh, you had the Senate that had written uh, a report that uh, many would call a, a prosecutor's brief. And we had to release this and, and work through it and work those three things. And there was a nine-month negotiation uh, back and forth with a lot of data science and other things with the, with the Hill. Uh, they were doing their job. Uh, the White House, the, a lot of intense conversations with the White House, including with the president's chief of staff. And in all of these conversations, all these nine months, a period of time that was um, – where you'd get together at nine o'clock at night with five people in the director's office and a call from the white house and a call from based on a call from the Senate staff, et cetera, or the, or the members themselves. I never heard John Brennan say one disrespectful thing or one partisan thing. And further, he wouldn't allow it. I mean, there were times when our, our, you know, tempers were frayed. Uh, we were tired People were frustrated. This was nine months of agonizing over every single word in that document. And if any of us had even a, uh, a negative comment about, you know, any of the other people we were working with um, uh, and who were all just trying to do what they felt was, you know, the, the right thing to do, he, d he would, that's the time he would snap and say, we're not going to have that conversation. Uh, he had worked for, I met him when he was working for George Tennant, who worked across parties 
uh, worked in various administrations. Uh, John Brown was not a political. I, I, I don't know what his political affiliation was because he never had it. I, I just remembered John Brennan, you know, when I was much younger officer, being up on the seventh floor, being in the, uh, the deputy exter, and and if something went wrong, uh, you got to call to Brennan's office. It was very clear what you had to do. You had to fix the problem. Yeah. So, Sean, I do want to take a little bit of time here at the end to talk about cyber, as your role in the Digital Innovation Center, as you talked about earlier, kind of puts you at the center of the agency's own cyber operations on the one hand, and the agency's need to protect its own systems on the other. So, I know you've thought a lot about the cyber threat. And so let me ask you a couple of questions about that. One is on the threat side. How do you define the threat? How do you think about its significance? How do you think about how fast it's evolving? Walk us through the threat first. So for the threat, uh, I would say you have the nation state players. Um, They're particularly uh, Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. And uh, there's a respect for the capabilities that they bring in, in the cyber arena, uh, for sure. What is evolving quickly in the threat is the non-nation state and the uh, non-nation state sponsored actors. And what I'll, I'll offer is splinter factions of maybe something that was originally uh, conceived or sponsored by a nation state now in the hands of another group that has some other aim or objective. And that space seems to be Uh, increasing rapidly, which uh, one of the agency's responsibility as an intelligence organization is to provide uh, not a description of how the hack worked, uh, because that's kind of the forensics of of, of a car accident, but instead to really say, okay, um, who did this? And who did this with confidence, the attribution piece? And that's a very, very difficult mission. uh, And it, it, it involves an orchestration across the agency that extends far beyond digital. And this, again, is where all source analysts and our uh, case officers uh, of are the director of operations, uh, they're a very big part of this, of understanding. Our, our job is to explain, explain what happened is okay. Uh, it's, it's a minimum. It's a minimum standard, though. But who did this? And then, more importantly, what will they be doing next? What are their intentions? So the what are level, their capabilities? What, what can are, they do? Absolutely. So the if among the digital players, I'd say, uh, and that means Cyber Command, our partners at NSA, our partners at FBI, et cetera, we are all working with each other. Um, we, we all have a lot of respect for each other. We all know each other. But then it, what's different about it and what has to evolve and continue to evolve faster is every officer has to see themselves in part of this space. Um, and what can they do? What What are the... Uh, intelligence requirements that actually drive back to understanding the cyber mission and the cyber threat. This is a really tough question. Do you think this has, if you think back in history, is there something like this that we can compare it to, or is this a unique phenomenon that we're facing? I I don't think that there's any one thing per se that we can compare it to um, because of of the, the, the non-state actor role. The price the barrier to entry here is very, very low. Very low. One uh, similar, so so let's take a couple examples and then offer that no two problems are the same that the agency has to solve, but we can learn from each set of problems. First, there was the air defense problem that emerged after World War II. World War II, the advent of radar, better and better radar. There were smart people 
that said, we probably shouldn't build any more airplanes. We should just launch missiles at each other. An airplane will never get through. Then someone said, well, we could probably, you know, the agency designed the A-12 and well, it's because it's faster than a bullet. They're just never going to catch it. Um, the U-2 was first. It just flew a lot higher. Then the radars got better. Then the, the missiles got better. Then the missiles had seekers. Then we made the planes out of stealth. So that, that back and forth, now that's, that's, cyber's not quite that, but there's a lot of that in cyber, the back and forth of tradecraft and, and signature management. And then you have anti-submarine warfare, which again, a, a lot of nuances, a lot of different technology, a lot of different techniques, and a lot of very in, inventive ways of, of, of solving the problem. And then you have terrorism, where you had state-sponsored terrorism, uh, and then you had splinter groups, and then you have wannabes. And, and lone wolves. So if you take those three problems mm. with which men and women in the agency uh, have contributed over the years, and especially in our counterterrorism center, uh, what they do is just flat out, you know, incredible for every American. Um, if you take the tradecraft involved in those three and create the organization that learns and adapts as we did for those problems, we can get there in digital. And digital is different. But I, I think also the, another thing the counterterrorism mission has done for the agency, uh, that the agency's done about it, is in, in the last 19 years, the ability of those teams to move quickly and adapt and change the agency teams has had to match the pace of the adversary, and uh, they've demonstrated they can do it. So there's that agility and speed. We've got to borrow from that model as well. Sean, the other question I wanted to ask about cyber is the defense side. And I know you have something that you call the five C's of cyber defense. Where'd they come from, and could you kind of briefly walk us through those? Yes, actually, um, I one thing I found that I, I would really uh, was doing poorly for the six, first six months as directorate was that most of these conversations were with people who were truly interested but didn't have a lot of background in it. In some cases, they were very senior person who were intimidated by the fact that they did not have a grasp of all of these different issues. Nobody could, by the way, including myself. So having been a military person and gotten up and briefed everybody from an E1 to a, that's a an enlisted private equivalent to a four-star general of the secretary of defense, it came up with uh, something we all, re- all remember and some hooks to, to have the conversation going to any level of depth. And that's the five C's. And I borrowed it from, jewelry business a little bit so the jewelry business so the five c's cut clarity <laughs> okay gotcha gotcha, yeah. gotcha so okay. um i grew up in new york so uh so on, on this the first one is connectivity uh what are you connected to and then you just ask people do you really understand what you're connected to and they say well yeah i do and then, well do you understand your backup path is 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 a, a chinese vsat <laughs> uh and so there's connectivity there's configuration what equipment and what version are you running um then there is... Compl- are you up to date? And- are you up to- well, that's compliance. Okay, that's compliance, a, that's okay. third C, compliance, which is... We talk about patching. Patching is... Uh, the, the major vulnerability today is people don't patch. I mean, I, 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 within my family, I'm always, you know, checking cell phones and do you have the latest version of the software to which um, you, you get... You know, I threaten to cut them off if, if they haven't <laughs> up, up, updated the phone because patching is a pain in the neck. So you have... If you can find the box, then you have to patch it. But patching is really becoming repaving because... These are, especially in the world of 5G, it's a software-defined network. And then there's a collection. And collection means monitoring the performance of your network, where, you, where it's not doing its job, where it's hanging up, where it's slow, where it's not passing files, where it's doing 
something that it's not supposed to do or where it's about to fail. And then audit. That's the insider threat of understanding what people are doing on your network. And then finally, the last C is C is for culture, which counterintuitive, this is the toughest one. Mm-hmm. Getting people who used to see those IT guys as almost admin. Now, way back when in the agency, we had the IT professionals run a worldwide secure network of communications uh, uh, and, and, and uh, information technology and all the computers and everything else. They were attached to the administrative bureau. Uh, the administrative directorate. Now, that was a common model. But so on that culture, creating the culture, and it really, really drives some different behaviors. And I, I did a very poor job the first six months really explaining it. I mean, uh, for instance, on legacy equipment, I had no idea how hard it was going to be for people to walk away from legacy applications or legacy equipment. But at home... Because they were used to it. They're used to it. Comfortable and, with and, it. And it... And it, there's, there's almost there's an emotional attachment. It, the, the word, uh, you know, people said, well, they're nostalgic for it. Well, nostalgia comes from a Greek word meaning nausea. Um, so, but what I had to do is I had to change my messaging and change the approach because I, I wasn't being successful. We're at home, you're throwing away your phone and throwing away your laptop. Uh, the companies that are doing this best are literally assigning a identically configured laptop and then having them turn it in every 14 months and giving them a new one. We don't typically do that in the government. If it works, we keep it. Um, if five people are still using the application, um, you know, we have to wait for them to retire or, you know, leave and, and, and we have to break that paradigm somehow. So those are the, the, the five C's was an ontology I developed so that I could go into any level of depth, depending on who was in the audience. And we could use, Basic words people could understand. And we would have these little tests. For instance, uh, the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things are commodity devices that now are hooked to your network and you have them in your homes maybe. And they security is not a feature built into them and they are uh, incredibly unsecure. But people think of it as a device, like a blender on their counter. You know, they've got a, a human uh, voice-activated device on their counter um, that's actually in your network now. So your network footprint now is getting more and more complex. Um, we hire a lot of good folks to uh, maintain systems, but in companies and across organizations in the government, we found one of the part of the contract, they were not on contract to maintain the configuration and know the configuration. Right. For instance, the fix, if, if I dive down a little bit on patching and configuration, if you find a machine that's running Windows XP, the fix for XP is, Replace, mm-hmm. replace the whole thing. You know, for, you know, go grab the machine and put a new one in. There's no patching Windows XP, and so um, a lot of the big uh, cyber events that have been reported were systems that, for a patch, was existence. It, it simply wasn't patched. And when you go find out, well, did somebody not do their job. Well, they couldn't even find the boxes or understand mm-hmm. what version, what mm-hmm. Cisco security appliance they were running. So the five C's was just an ontology um, and a and, and a way to start maybe a, a little bit of education with the discussion. Sean, thank you so much for spending time with us, for sharing your thoughts, and uh, most important, thank you for your 38 years of service to our country. Thank you, Michael. I, I, I just want to double down on saying that, um, again, it, it, it was an honor to be inspired by the men and women who do things that people will never know about, and especially by those those folks who go forward and do things that, you know, few people are ever asked to do and few people are actually capable of doing. 
Thanks, Sean. That was Sean Roach. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.